This is Enjoy Cherokee Voices, a podcast recorded live to deliver in-depth conversations with dynamic people from all corners of Cherokee County. Listeners like you sink into this weekly podcast to learn more about the people that make Cherokee County extraordinary. And now it's time to get to know another neighbor. Here's your host, Jody Drinkard. Hello, hello, and welcome to the studio. Anthony Hall, how are you? I'm well, Jody. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate it. I have been waiting how long for this podcast? You came into our office when? Probably six, eight months ago? Yeah, right around that time, and you avoided me ever since. Still, <laughs> no. I believe that is not the case. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Anthony Hall, you are um, an artist. Mm-hmm. You are a survivor. Mm-hmm. You are a man of God. Absolutely. And you are a daddy. I am. And a hubby. A hubby. No a hubby, hubby. Hubby, hubby, hubby. Very happy hubby. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Sometimes in those little forms, they say married or, <laughs> you know, divorced or single or whatever. And I, cr- I always write happily married. That's on right. And then that's check right. the box. So. That's right. They need to put that on there. I know. Right? Yeah. Okay. Anthony, we are here and we're going to talk to you today about art from the heart. Okay, let's do it. Because art had, is from the heart. What happened? Who's on the cover of Enjoy Cherokee Magazine? That would be me. Look yeah. at God. Look at that. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful for you, Jody. You have no idea. Uh, when you sent, when that, that article was sent to me and I just, uh, I cried tears of joy. Did you really? I did. And not just because of the article. Uh, but because of a certain section, when you place the one in there about me and my my children, my boys, mm-hmm. that one really hit for me. So when I read that, I just fell apart. Well, yeah. that's great. Yes, the Enjoy Cherokee magazine for the May June edition for two, uh, for 2022. Uh, the cover picture is Anthony Hall's toes, <laughs> his painted feet. Yeah. And uh, and um, I look forward to everybody reading this article. We're going to kind of go into depth. A little bit more mm-hmm. about what we're going to talk about. I mean, about your life. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. All right, Anthony, tell me, where were you born and raised? Uh, born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in a little uh, project called uh, Hurt Village. Um, Hurt of, Village? Yeah, Hurt Village. Uh, so for some of the people who've seen The Blind Side, uh, the neighborhood that they portrayed in The Blind Side, that's the neighborhood that I grew up in. Really? Yeah. Uh is that a true story? Yeah, well, it's based on a true story with uh, Michael Orr. I didn't get to see the entire movie. I haven't watched the entire movie because I know some of the way uh, it was portrayed. It wasn't, uh, once Hollywood gets their hands on it, they got to, you know, butter it up a little bit. But I know a little bit about this story, and um, it's a little bit more, uh, we'll just say, you can go into a little bit more depth with this story. Um, and just about what, Every kid over there who was born and raised in that neighborhood, uh, pretty much the same story. Moms on drugs, uh, don't know their father, grandmothers raising them. So it's a lot of stories like that. But unfortunately, a lot of kids weren't able to make it um, or wasn't able to see the side of the light that Michael was able to uh, be able to get, was blessed enough to get. So, yeah. Well, I think you have a blessed story also. Indeed. So. When you were, so you were born there mm-hmm. in that community in Memphis, mm-hmm. and um, what was life like? What, are you the the eldest in your mother's family? I'm the youngest. I, I I have two older sisters, and around that time, my older sisters they were um 
living on their own at that time, even as teenagers, they were um, 17 and 13 at the time, I believe, or 18 and 14, one of them, but they had their own apartments. Uh, they were living their own life in like grown adults. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something that's common, you know, around in, the, in those parts of the woods. So um, it's nothing out of the ordinary for a young lady to be living on their own at that time. And, you know, the way they were uh, able to pay their bills and things of that nature is another story. But um, there, there was just something common where I grew up. So when you say they were living on their own, were they in the same community still? No, they weren't in the same community. Um, they got an apartment, uh, was probably about 20 minutes away from us. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the, I mean, again, that was just something that was almost natural. And sometimes kids do get the same uh, benefits of their parents uh, because you're growing up in that environment. Maybe you're on welfare or Section 8 or something like that. And sometimes people do are able to get the same apartment next to their mom or something like that. But my sisters were quite different. and. Um, they end up moving that on their own at a young age. So you were kind of almost an only child then to your mother at that time. Is that right? And yeah, she you, was on drugs. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was, you were home alone a lot, maybe? Yeah, it, it, it got to that point. It, for a minute, I was, it was me and my grandmother. I was living with my grandmother a lot. And then my grandmother moved in with my mom and I. And then uh, when my grandmother passed, um, I remember going in and finding her. You know, because I found her a couple of times, she would slip and fall, hit her head or something like that. And I would just wake her up and get her up. And then this time she wasn't getting up. And that was my grandmother was a really, so she really, had fallen. You found her. Yeah, I she had, had fallen. I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. She didn't have any a knot on her head. So I don't think she fell and hit herself. I think she just had a heart attack or something. And um, and at this time she wasn't getting up. And that was the most devastating day of my life because uh, my grandmother was like my that was my woman. That was my lady. She took care of me uh, and my siblings. And she was just always there, a supportive woman. And um, it was just a devastating day for me, to say the least. How old were you? I think I was right around uh, 13, 13 mm-hmm. or 14 when I found her. So yeah, That's horrible. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah, quite a devastating day. So how did you pick yourself up from that? Well, it was kind of a blessing in disguise. Uh, once I got older, I realized that because at that time, my grandmother was like my everything, you know. Um, and when my grandmother passed, I didn't want to live in the same apartment where I found her. And mm-hmm. so that was really hard for me. And so my mom called my uncle, who was living about 25 minutes away in, a, in another neighborhood called Orange Mound which was another uh, rough neighborhood, really rough neighborhood. But um, it was different for me because I wasn't around the same environment that I was familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I was going into another environment, which was a lot better. And although I stayed with my uncle and his wife, I slept on the floor. They only lived in a one bedroom apartment, but he was um, willing to take me in and get me out of that environment. And I just wanted to be away. I couldn't see myself sleeping in that place where I found my grandmother. Yeah. And he took me in. So that was his mother. Is no, that right? No. No. Um, the way this happened, um, my origin, my biological grandmother died before I was born. And my biological grandmother was best friends to who I call my grandmother, Sarah Williams. They were best friends when they were growing up. And right before my grandmother passed, um, she asked my grandmother if she would take care of her family. 
mm-hmm. you know, and she made the promise to my biological grandmother that I would always be there for your family. And so that's the only woman she was. Gotcha. Yeah, she was. Yeah. She had died before I was born. And so Sarah Williams was the only woman that I've known as a grandmother, you know, so she was my grandmother yeah, to me. I understand. Yeah, right? That's what a, what a tribute to your real biological grandmother that right. she had that kind of friend. Right. Wonderful. Okay, so then you were living with your uncle mm-hmm. and staying on the floor. Yeah. What was life like? Life was pretty normal. Um, I ended up going to this school in um, Orange Mound called Melrose High School, where I then began to play football. And uh, after playing football, I, there was this coach there, this young coach who was very energetic. Um, the team just came off a successful season. They had this quarterback and this wide receiver, and they were really talked about in the city of Memphis. And I thought it was very interesting that the news newspaper would come and talk to these guys, and the news reporters would be talking, and I'm seeing uh, college coaches coming in and out of the school, and I thought that was very interesting. It was something that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite frankly, just about anyone in that school, it was just, just like a, a shock to them that these coaches would come in this rough neighborhood, in this school, where um, some of everything happens every single day, and they will be willing to come inside of these dangerous schools to talk to these players. And so once I started playing football, that helped me stay off the streets. So some of my time was kind of condensed because I was spending a lot of time in football practice. It was like, um, it seems to me what you're saying is all of a sudden there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Like you could see life beyond high school, beyond what you were in right now. Is that true? Absolutely. That happens. That happened to a lot of players because we had about 75 players on our team. And, um, isn't that a lot? Yeah, that was a lot. But everybody wanted to play for this this new coach. Who was the coach? His name is Coach Timothy Thompson, and um, he was from my neighborhood. He grew. We grew up in a well. He grew up in the area that I was that I was born and raised in. But of course, I didn't know him at the time. But I found out he was from my neighborhood. And this fiery coach. I mean, um, he's turning kids' lives around and got these high quality coaches coming from Alabama and LSU. And he was the talk of the town. Mm -hmm. And so um, once I started seeing that, well, all of the players, we started seeing these guys getting highly recruited by these big colleges. And it kind of made a shift in a lot of people's minds. So it was kind of like, well, this guy's coming from a home where he doesn't know his father. This guy's mom's on drugs. This guy's mom's an alcoholic. And um, you can go in your neighborhood. Instead of spending all these hours at practice, you can go in your neighborhood and make Two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars a day. Right. But kids started, people started to sacrifice and say, maybe this can be a different way out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was he. He turned some hearts, I guess, and minds. So in the article, Mm -hmm. you also mentioned he turned your your mind and your heart in another direction. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, when I was playing football, uh, once I got in the eighth grade, I dropped out of school. And I went back to my neighborhood, back to her village. And uh, I was out of school for about three, three months. And um, I went back to my neighborhood and I just did what I could to survive, you know, what everyone else was doing. I got back in it. I started to become a product of my environment again. And then um, I heard this knock on the door. Me and my, my stepbrother, we were playing a video game and there was a knock on our door. And he went to go answer it. And he said, hey, man, your coach is out there. And I said, my coach, well, I don't play anything. <laughs> I was like, what coach? I don't play anything. I was like, I don't coach. play anything. 
And then <laughs> when I went to the door, I saw Coach Thompson and he said, hey, where you been? And I said, um, nowhere, Coach. And then he looked down at my feet. I remember like it was yesterday. He looked down at my feet and seen me with some brand new Jordans on. Ah. And he know my situation. He know I can't, my mom can't afford that. And he said, how you get those shoes? And I just shrugged my shoulders and he said, get your butt in that truck. <laughs> and he made me get in his rodeo. You just said, okay. I just said, or did, okay. Or did he come and say, no, you are getting in there. Oh, it was just, I mean, he just, he spoke with such authority, you know, even when he said that he was like a father figure. And so when he said that, I automatically knew what was going on. And so I just got in his truck and he took me back to Orange Mound and he got me back enrolled in school. He, I failed that year. So he put me in summer school, made sure I got in summer school. Um, and every year I was going to summer school, but he was just, I wasn't eligible to play, uh, until my junior year. And he just made sure every year that I was going to summer school so I can be caught up to be able to play one of my years. Why do you think he picked you? Why do you think he came there and said, you know what, Anthony, I'm going to change your life. Why do you think he did that for you? He said this before and I, it was because he saw a little bit of himself in me. Really? Because he grew up in the same area. He was in a single parent home and he knew, I think his mom was, had struggled with uh, alcoholism uh, when she was younger, then at the, around the time when he was younger. And so he saw a little bit of himself in me and he refused to, to give up on me. And that day when he came to pick me up, it's like, it, it was like I owed him something. Now I didn't, I, I didn't literally owe him anything. Mm-hmm. I knew he was, you know, doing it from his heart. But it, it was like I owed him something to graduate. I owed him to, you know, go out there and give my all. I owed that to him because I knew he was saving my life. Unbelievable. Yeah. I wonder if he did that for a lot of folks. Oh, many people. I did mean, he? so many guys who um, grew up in a situation, even though I was from her village, um, the team from um, Melrose, they just embraced me because I, it's like I'm one of them. Everybody, mom is here is is struggling. Everyone in here is um, uh, coming from a background where it's not okay to go home. We spent more time at practice than we did at home because we would get out of practice at ten o'clock at night, ten thirty at night, and we practice on a a baseball field. The school I went to, we couldn't afford a football field, and so we would have to share the practice baseball field with the baseball team. Mm-hmm. And so it was dirt that we were practicing on and we didn't have lights and some of the parents and people in the neighborhood, they would stand around the fence and watch us uh, practice. And they would just, just for coach Thompson, because they knew he was going to be hard on these boys and he's changing these kids lives. So the, the people, the winos and the homeless people, they will be around the fence just watching us practice. And the people who had cars, because we didn't have lights for our uh, field, they would turn their high beams on. So they could oh. help us see. And we will be getting out of practice at 1030. It takes a village. It did. Oh, my gosh. It and did. this person really pulled that village together. That's right. Wow. That's right. Did he ever speak of Christ? Oh, before practice, he talked about because he knew he was going to. I don't know if he understood this, that he was going to be putting us through some things that, I mean, because he practiced us. He, <laughs> so he's like, I got to introduce him to prayer because yeah. they're going to need it. <laughs> That's right. He demanded perfection out of us. And, but at the same time, before we went out to practice for five hours straight, we would spend an hour talking about God and life because he understood the dynamics of each kid in that locker room, because you got kids, how are you going to change these kids mind when they can leave and go and make, 
they can go and sell drugs and make 300 bucks, 200 bucks to feed their family. Right. What are you going to say to, to these children that are, are struggling when they go back home, they might find their mother, uh, OD'd. They might find uh, guys running in and out of their homes, drug dealers running in and out of their homes. Their sisters and their little brothers are hungry. What can you say to these kids to keep them coming back every day? And um, I think he understood that God was going to have to play a major part in this. And God absolutely did. And so we would talk about God and life and he would talk about situations of each individual because he knew all of our stories. And it's like he related to us and we could relate to him because he went through the same thing. And so, Oh my gosh, this is incredibly moving. It's hard for me to come up with questions because you're very well-spoken. Is this going to be a movie? Lord willing. Um, some of the guys, um, I know when I was when I was into acting, when I first moved down here, I, I came to pursue acting and I met this director. I was in a stage play with Dorsey Levins, um, Karan Riley, Lisa Wu Hartwell, uh, football players, NFL football players. And uh, the director of that play, I told her about this. We was just we were randomly talking. I ended up sharing this story. She said, Anthony, this is a movie. And she said, and so uh, I introduced her to Coach Thompson and she flew down to Memphis and uh, unfortunately nothing came out of that. And some of the guys were calling me, some of the guys still today, they said, Anthony, why don't you do it? Just do it. Because I had started writing on this 10 years ago. And uh, I guess, guess I got a 10 year writer's block. Uh, 10 a, years writer's block. I'm a big procrastinator. Go for a walk. Every, going for a walk always helps. Just go for a walk. Yeah, I'm just, a, I'm, I've been procrastinating because I've been trying to juggle so many things. But um, that's God's story. And God, God's fingerprints are all over that story. And I know it needs to be shared because um, he will be glorified in it. And that's the main thing that I'm my main goal in that in, to show people what God had done with kids uh, who didn't even, we used to lift weights in a, in a, a classroom. We didn't even have a weight room. So we had to put aside some of the chairs and the stools that were in classrooms to lift our weights in. So Anthony, while you're out on the football field mm-hmm. and coach Thompson is helping you navigate life, mm-hmm. basically, what was going on inside the schoolroom? I mean, in the classroom, because I know that you were saying that you had to go to summer school every summer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was mandatory or if that was something that was just a real positive thing in your life? Well, it, it was because I, I really wasn't applying myself uh, because I was still failed. And that's why he made sure I went to summer school every year because I was failing every, every class because when I was in school, my mother had got diagnosed with the deadliest disease, a very what? deadly disease. And at that time when I was the first person my mom told, about I went with her to the doctor's office and um, we went inside the doctor's office and um, she came out teary eyed and I can oh, tell you she were in the waiting crying. room. You were waiting. Yes, for I was her in the out. waiting room. Yeah. And so I can tell she had been crying. So I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe she's pregnant and oh. she doesn't want to be or because I always wanted a younger brother. Uh, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe those are tears of joy or maybe she's not ready to be pregnant again with her fourth child. And so as we begin to walk back to her village, she must have enough, enough strength to tell me what was going on. And she said, Tony, I have something very important to tell you. And uh, we continued to walk. It took her a minute to tell me. She said, I have AIDS and the doctors gave me six months to live. Oh, no. yeah. And so as we're walking, neither one of we didn't break stride. We didn't look at each other. I think both of our minds were like 
like it, it, we drew blanks. I couldn't say, I didn't know what to say. It's too big. It's yeah, too big it was, to comprehend. Yeah. And at that time at my age, and it's like, I didn't know how to comprehend that. And, but what I did do, I went back home to my, we, when we got back to our apartment, she went her separate way and I went home to my room and I just fell out on my floor and I cried and I cried oh, no. and I didn't grow up in church, but I, I didn't. So I knew of God, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't know him. I knew of him. So I just started praying, you know, at, at this age, I was about 13. And so, um, I just started praying. Wait a minute. This is about 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Didn't you say that's about when your grandmother passed? My mother passed. So it was right after, uh, right before my grandmother died. So yeah. you, your mother was diagnosed with AIDS and then your mother, your grandmother dies. Oh my goodness. I, I'm just heartbroken. Oh man. Yeah. But I mean, that's. So once I got to my room, I prayed and I was just crying and I, I made a, I like to call it, I always say I made a covenant with God because at that time um, I was in and out of juvenile, uh, stealing things. I was a kleptomaniac. I was stealing anything and hanging with the wrong people. And so the prayer that I made to God, I said, Lord, please allow my mother to live long enough to see me be something in life. And so because I used to hear from, you're not going to be anything you know, I used to hear that a lot. So I started to believe it. And so I was just in and out of jail, you know, and because I always stole, I stole from family members. I mean, it was horrible. And, um, and that's the prayer that I prayed, Lord, let my mother live long enough to see me be something in life. Because I remember my mom telling me when she was pregnant for the third time and she was praying for a boy. And she said, if it was a girl, I probably would have had an abortion. Mm. She said, and here your little ugly self come. And I was so proud of to have you. And I, those words stuck with me and, uh, she, she was so proud to have me, mm-hmm. but I wasn't living up to my end of the bargain because of the lifestyle that I was living. And so I, I prayed that prayer and, um, and then after that, it was just like, I was trying to do better, you mm-hmm. know, from that point on. How long did your mother live? When I graduated college, I got a job coaching. I got a, I had, I was the head coach of girls basketball. I was the head assistant coach of football I was a full-time uh, physical health and physical education teacher. I called my mom to tell her, and a few days later, she went in the ICU. You are kidding me. And God she honored was, their prayer. She was expected to live six months, and she lived how many years? 13 years later. 13 years So that's later. why when I, I started writing on a book, and I think I'm going to name the book six, six Months, 13 Years. Say it again. Six Months, 13 Years. That is a wonderful So they gave us six months to live. She ended up living 13 years. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Lord willing, that's the plan. Okay, let's go back to high school now. You're Mm -hmm. still, you're in high school. You're playing football, Mm -hmm. going to summer school. Mm -hmm. Did you practice all year round? Year round. Yeah. Our coach didn't believe in anything else. He said football is year round. Football is your life. That was. It became that. Or something else would have been my life. If if we would have had any downtime, he know the type of kids that he was dealing with. I mean, it was it was a no brainer. Majority mm-hmm. of the team was go be in jail, you yeah. know. So he kept us busy, and so I'm in and out of summer school. But as I'm going to school now, I got this news when I was 13. So as I'm in school, I mean, I didn't care about uh, grades. I was getting kicked out, suspended. I didn't really care about school because I got bigger fish to fry when exactly. I exactly. I don't know if I'm going to go home and find my mother, you know. So. I really, I was kind of nonchalant to school and the problems that I was having. And so um, the only thing that kept me afloat was continuing to go to football practice. 
mm-hmm. know, and so this that helped me out a lot. So all these people are coming from different colleges and do they see you playing and are you one of their, are, they, are you catching their eye? No, at this time I was still, again, I, I wasn't able to play till I, till my junior year. Mm. That's when I was able to be eligible uh, for football. And so um, there was a senior in front of me. So me and this senior end up splitting time at quarterback because um our coach, he ran it like a college. He's like, every day your job is on the line. So that made everybody mm. come out. You better bring your A game every single day or you could lose to the person behind you. This guy that I was playing in, uh, behind, he was a senior. But at the same time, I was a junior and I was – he would go in and throw four touchdowns and I would come in right behind him and throw three touchdowns in uh-huh. the same game because we were beating people um, 66 to three. Oh, my goodness. 80 to seven, you know. And uh, we hadn't lost a game in the city of Memphis in, I think, in four or five years. We Unbelievable. Lost a game in the city of Memphis. And so we were like 35 and 0, 40 and 0 in the city of Memphis. So, so in every team that we were playing in the city, our competition came when we made it to the playoffs, when we played against those schools who had real programs, mm-hmm. uh, schools like White House, uh, schools like Pearl Cone out of Tennessee and, and Maryville. We end up uh, seeing them in um it was a lot of come Portland, Tennessee, and we played against those guys in the competition. We would still make it to the state championship, but we would have some fights. You know, yeah. we wouldn't beat everybody 50 to zero in, <laughs> in the playoffs. So it would be some fights. We would probably beat them by two touchdowns. And our coach was such a perfectionist. If a team in the city of Memphis, sometimes if they would score on us before ha- at halftime, he would have us rolling and bear crawling because oh. they scored or they got a first down because oh he demanded gosh. that from us. Right. And, and that was our standard. That was our mm-hmm. standard. Mm-hmm. So now you're a junior, then you become a senior. Are you ever on the starting team? Yeah. So my senior year. So as a junior, I was ranked number 11 um, in the state and this was as a backup. Mm. And um, so you're ranked number 11 as a backup. As a quarterback, period. They didn't put oh, back oh, okay. up. But because I split so much time with the senior, or he would, um, because he would go in and the game would already be out of reach in the in the second half. He would have four touchdowns already, <laughs> and I would come in right behind. But that's how our coach built us for the next for the next year. He always prepared for the next season, kind of like Alabama, sure. the University of Alabama. Alabama, they never. Um, Alabama always reload. You know, they mm-hmm. never run out. They always reload. So, and that's how, what his mentality was. It's like the next man up, even if the senior, a senior in front of us got hurt. I mean, we would have a sophomore on the bench who could do the exact same sure. thing as a senior because that's how our practices were ran. And he trained us and he, man, he, he just, um, he did a phenomenal job with making athletes. He mm-hmm. was great at that. Yeah. Great. So now we're, when you, you're number 11 in the state. In the state. As a, as a, well, they didn't know, but as a backup quarterback. And so coming into my senior year, um, right before uh, our jamboree is something called the jamboree where all the teams meet up at this same, same football team and you play like a quarter or a half. And uh, the, pra- the uh, practice before, the week before, I broke my hand. Oh, no. Yeah, as a senior and I missed eight weeks. Ugh. And I had a 6'4 uh, sophomore behind me. I told you we you didn't have a broken hand. We reload. Yep. We reload. And so this six, four sophomore came in and he was ranked in the state as well. You must have been heartbroken. I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. And so, um, eight weeks I had this cast on and his sophomore, he's a really good friend of mine. now 
Um, well, he's always been. We we were all like family. Um, but he was um, highly recruited as a sophomore. Really? Yeah, he was highly recruited. And here I am with a cast on. Son until of a gun. I, So the eighth week, I ended up getting my cast off. And uh, funny how God works. <laughs> but um, the eighth week, when I finally came out of my cast, I dress up for the, um, for the game. He's starting. And I'm just hoping that I'm able to, you know, get back in the rhythm. And um, he ended up having a horrible game. He oh. was playing so bad that game. That was, the, that was our first loss of the season in the last, I think, five years. That was our first time wow. losing in the city of Memphis. And um, so coach put me in, in like the fourth quarter, I think. And I came in and I threw the only winning, I mean, the only touchdown that we had that game. Oh. So we lost that game 21-7. to And then from that point on, I started. I started back starting, and we went all the way to the state championship where I threw the winning touchdown. You won the state championship? We won the state championship. Because of your touchdown? Well, because of God. I want to say because of oh my, my gosh. touchdown. Yeah. God gave it to you, though. God gave it to me. Hey, that's awesome. Yeah, praise God. So did you play, did you go to college? I went to a small school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It's a HBCU called Stillman College. Mm-hmm. And it was like um, seven minutes from the University of Alabama. And uh, people ask me how I'm, a, how I'm an Alabama fan. I became an Alabama fan because I was at Steelman, but I played with two Parade All-Americans who was playing at the University of Alabama. Ah. So when our practices were over in the summer, instead of Al- Alabama practice year-round, so instead of me going home because I didn't really have much to go to I didn't, uh, and I didn't want to go back to that environment, I would just uh, go over to the University of Alabama, and I spent the entire summer at the University of Alabama with my the guys that I played high school ball with, and I would practice with them. I got to know the coaches. Um, I got to know all the players. All of them knew me. So this is how I became an Alabama fan. I, you're, yeah, that's kind of instilled in you then. Yeah. You're kind of almost part of the team. Yeah, way. right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So what did you study in college at Stillman? Uh, <laughs> well, I started off with, um, with computer science. That's what I started. How did that go? Oh, it went. <laughs> <laughs> but I was there for two years, and I got a, a F in just about every class. And my, a friend of mine came up to me, and we laughed and joked about this a few weeks ago. And he came up, he said, Anthony, uh, what's your major? I said, computer science. And he know what type of person I am. He looked at me, he said, well, what are you doing in computer science? Why did you, what made you choose that major? I said, I don't know. It sound good in conversation. Whenever <laughs> I'm talking, to, and we just started. Like, he said, "Boy, if you don't get out of that computer science and go to health and physical education," and so um, I did. I dropped computer science. I went over to health and physical education, and I made A's and B's. Fantastic you know? yeah. A's yeah. and B's. A's and wow. B's. Wow! Didn't yeah. have to go to summer school. Got to oh, go to yeah. Alabama. I, no, I still had to oh, go to summer school. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to catch up from all the uh, grades that I was making from computer science. So you graduated from Stillman? I graduated, yeah. Congratulations. That's Thank huge. You. And then you went on. What was your first job out of college? Well, the coach who was like a father figure to me, Coach Tim Thompson, he got a coaching job at this, small, at this school in Somerville, Tennessee called Fayetteware High School. And soon when he heard about, that's what he used to always say to me when I would come home from college. He said, you better not come here without that paper, uh-huh. without the degree. And he was like, you better not come home without that paper. I don't care what's going on. Don't come through those doors without that paper. And uh, once he heard I graduated, he called me. He said, I heard you graduated. Well, come on, I got a job for you. <gasps> and soon as I graduated, I, uh, at the age of 25, I went to go be the, um, the assistant coach. Uh, quarterback coach at Fayetteville High School. And then the superintendent said, well, we're still looking for a, a girls basketball coach. And Coach Thompson was like, Anthony will do it. 
And I didn't know nothing about <laughs> basketball. <laughs> I didn't know much of anything about basketball. And I, I was like, but I was up for the challenge. I said, you know, I'm young and naive. I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so I became the girls' head basketball coach. And that first year, we went 2-20. and 20. No We way. were horrible. <laughs> I was like, and I was praying. I said, Lord, I think they got the wrong man for this job. <laughs> and then I remember having a conversation with Coach Thompson. He said, Anthony, he said, you got the recipe. He said, you got, he said, you got to make those girls believe in you. He said, you remember, he said, just go back to what I used to do with y'all. He said, I talked to y'all about God and life. I practice with y'all every day. And I showed, not only did I tell you, I showed y'all by example. Mm -hmm. And I said, it made so much sense. And so I started practicing with the girls. Now I knew how to play basketball, but I never really played organized basketball. And so I started practicing with them every day. All the sprints that I made them run, 70 sprints. I would run every one of them with them. Oh my goodness. I would run each and every one of them with them. And so, um, and I became so dedicated and I would spend the night in the gym in my office instead of driving home 45 minutes, I would be driving kids home and it would be better for me to go back to the school and sleep in the school instead of driving 45 minutes home and have to get up in four out five hours, you know? So I was spending, and the girls found out that I was spending the night in the school in my office and their parents, they would bring me blankets and and pillows. I would put three desks together and sleep on top of the desk. I had a shower in my office. But I didn't have anything else but desk and um, and um, chairs. Again, a village. Yeah, that's amazing. And then the next year, we won the district championship. You went from two years in a row. You went from winning two games one year to winning the district championship. Unbelievable! Yeah, two years in a row, we won it back to back. But there was the switch. But but it was all God. It was all God because I was pleading. I was like, Lord, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I look like a fool. And uh, and uh, that's when God started showing me because I was c- kind of trying to implement some of Coach Thompson's things mm-hmm. to these girls. And it was wrong. And it's like God was telling me, be yourself. Be who I called you to be. Be who I called you to be. And um, once I did that and the girls kind of seen a change in me and um, they started, they would pick up a building for me. Unbelievable. They would do anything for me. Yeah. Yeah. Be yourself. Yeah. 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 So then, um, how did you end up living here in Cherokee County? How did that story go? Well, after coaching for five years, um, I used to do stand up comedy. Get out of town. Yeah. So I was on, in <laughs> high school, I was always known as the funniest kid on the campus in high school and college. Um, so, or one of the funniest guys on campus in college. So I would win most, most humorous on campus. So you write your material and stand up on stage. Yeah, I would do all of that. Yeah. So I would do that. And majority of the time I didn't have, I didn't write anything. I just, it would just be, I would have it all in my head and I would just go on stage. And I, I remember winning a, um, a talent show at Steelman and I opened up for CeeLo Green. So the, no the winning kidding. act would open up for CeeLo Green. And so in doing that, I would perform at some of the nightclubs and stuff like that. And so I always wanted to do that. And that was just a burning passion that I had. And then when I was teaching and coaching, I I felt like um, I think that candle was burning, you know, dim a little bit because I still had this passion. And I said, you know what, why don't I just move and go for it? You know, because I'd rather have the the, I tried than the what ifs than live with regret and say, what if I would have if I would have followed up. So I just, I, I moved and I followed up. And as I got to, um, I moved to Smyrna, Smyrna, Cobb County when I first moved here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you do some stand up? Oh yeah. I ended up doing some stand up. Um, 
I would go to uh, uh, me and a friend of mine. We went to this. Uh, it wasn't uptown. I can't remember the name of this. This little bar and grill that would host comedy nights. And uh, we just went and because he wanted to be a comedian. And uh, so he and I went, but that was his, he was already down here and he was doing it. But he, I remember one night going there, I was like, man, go put your name on the list. I was excited for him. Mm-hmm. I was like, go put your name on the list. Cause I didn't come here to be a comedian. I wanted to be, I wanted to be an actor. And he was like, oh no, man, I don't have any material. I don't have anything written. And I was like, man, just go, just do just it. Go sign just up. He's like, nah, man, I ain't gonna do it. So next thing you know, he's looking for me and I'm in the back room. I signed up. Oh, <laughs> I signed up. I said, man, listen. So I signed my name on the list and they, they was looking around for me and he see me pop out on stage. Oh and my I goodness. did some stand up, and that's what motivated him. And he was and he, everywhere he goes, he tell the story. He said, boy, if it wasn't for Anthony Hall, he said, I would never. And he's been in, he's been on TV shows now. His What's name, his name? Roderick Minger. All right. We're so, going to have to look, yeah, him, look up. him up. Rod Minger. And he, he's been on TV shows. He does stand up. He has YouTube channels with these big celebrities now. And uh, he does really well now. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. You're, you got him motivated to do yeah. his, own, his own career in, yeah. that, in that field. So that's cool. Yeah. So did you get to do any acting? That's what you came here for. Yeah, I was in a, actually because of him. Um, so he was doing, he was on the acting scene, but he wasn't on the comedy scene and he wanted to be a comedian Okay, and I wanted to be an actor. So at this time I was working this job, um, where I was going around to BJ's and, uh, Belks and Kroger selling knives for this company. Selling knives. So, You're one so, of those guys yeah, that so, people avoid when they're walking down the yeah, grocery store. No, you got to call them on the, on the intercom and say, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> You know, as seen on TV, that was me. So you were the knife man. I was one of the knife mans. And we did many things other than knives as well. Juggling? Oh, no. I no, not juggling. Okay. No. <laughs> but the mandolins, the thing that cut the mm-hmm. fruit, I would demonstrate all of that and get people to buy them. I was doing well with that. And so I was out of town in Seattle, Washington, in Spokane, Washington. And um, he called me. He said, hey, man, that role, there's a role that opened up on our play. He said, there was a guy who's in a Tyler Perry uh, on the Tyler Perry play, he dropped out. He said, this specific role is open. And I said, oh man, I said, man, I'm in, I'm thousands of miles away. Yeah. I'm in Washington. He was like, oh man. He's like, well, it's open and other people are auditioning for it. And I said, well, if, if God has it for me, then it'll still be for me. And so, um, I was in, uh, Washington for a week and I went back. I'm sure the role had been filled, mm-hmm. you know? So I went back home. I prayed about it. And when I got back home, he said, Hey man, they're auditioning for the role again. No. And kidding. I went there as soon as I auditioned, the director, she was like, this role was made for Anthony. Unbelievable. She's like, yeah. And so I ended up getting that role. So it was a play. It was a play. It was called stripped. Like, uh, not stripping. Like people, yeah. I have to always reiterate that. It's <laughs> Brown like, chicken not like you're stripping okay. your clothes off, <laughs> but the play was based on, um, like this NFL, because majority of the guys in the play were NFL players. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan Stewart, Dorsey Levins, who played for the Green Bay Packers, Karan uh, Riley, uh, Ed Hartwell. So it was based on uh, everything is being stripped away from me. And he had a, um, the player in the the main character in the play. He had a slight case of CTE, mm-hmm. which was a big story in the NFL where players were getting concussions and they were still uh, allowing them to go out on the field and play. And Dorsey Levins was kind of spearheading the lawsuit 
in that, and he wrote the play centered around oh, that. Okay, yeah. yeah, him and a uh, young lady named Tiffany Brown. So they wrote this play centered around that, and he was beginning to forget things, and everything was being stripped away from him. He had all these businesses and his um, agents and everything stealing money from him. Oh, you know, they had it in their name instead of his name. So it's like his family was being stripped away. You know, so the nightlife of the NFL players, and so he was kind of portraying that in the play, and. um it was a phenomenal story. I wish we could have did it on, on the road. Was Tyler Perry there? Was he directing no. or anything? Or? Oh, no. No, he just, Tyler Perry. He was, it was just his production. Kind oh, of. no, it wasn't his production. The guy who was um, the guy who was, who was supposed to be in that role, he was in some Tyler oh, Perry. Oh, I understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a great play. It really was. Goshen Valley provides peace and purpose to youth in foster care. There is an ongoing need for foster families in Cherokee County and all over Georgia. Goshen Valley is here to help meet that need. They provide safe, stable, and loving family-based models of care for those in need. Goshen Homes is a vital component of Goshen Valley. Goshen Homes understands that siblings in foster care should not be separated because they grow better together. For this reason, Goshen Homes works to recruit, train, license, and support foster families working with sibling groups in Cherokee County and the state of Georgia. If you have a little extra room in your home and heart, consider learning more about Goshen Homes and the unmatched joy you can discover by becoming foster parents. Visit www.goshenvalley.org homes. That's www.goshenvalley.org homes. And we're back. I'm Jody Drinkard, the host of Enjoy Cherokee Voices, and I'm here with Anthony Hall, a native of Memphis. Yeah. So uh, you were a teacher. Mm-hmm. Where were you teaching at the time? I was teaching at a school called uh, Fedwar High School in Somerville, Tennessee. Oh, this is during that time. Was Coach Thompson yes. part of that? Yes. Okay, he, he was the head coach of football, and I was his, one of his assistants. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was also the girls' basketball coach, head girls' basketball coach. So that was all mm-hmm. happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, in the article in Enjoy Cherokee magazine, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you were tied up. Right. What? What? How were you tied up? Was this like a prank, or what was going on? <laughs> I wish it. Was. I wish it was a prank. It was terrifying, though. No, um, around the time I was teaching, uh, like I said. Um, I when Coach Thompson told me I had the recipe, so I started talking to my girls about God and life, you know, every day mm-hmm. before practice. And um, I think that was kind of like one of my tests. God, like, I'm going to really see if you, you, you're about this faith talk, what you're talking about. Okay, you know, right. um, so I lived in this neighborhood out in East Memphis. And um, there was one point, um, me and my roommate, which is like a brother of mine, he wanted to go out to eat and um, he was going to this um, bar and grill to get some food late night. And he asked me if I wanted to go. I said, no, go ahead. I'm, I'm just going to stay back and watch a movie. I had just bought a movie on DVD. You can tell how mm-hmm. old this was. <laughs> um, and so um, once he left, uh, I was going to go to my truck to get my DVD play, my DVD movie. Now, in this neighborhood that I lived in, it was kind of sketchy. You know, it wasn't really, really bad. But it was it was becoming that. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was still some uh, honorable people living there, some, you know, cit- good citizens living there. But there were also some people moving in that were, you know, kind of sketchy. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
so every day I, I was licensed to carry my gun and uh, I would always have my gun on me, either on my hip or something like that. Uh, and so at this particular time, it was about 12 in the morning. Uh, midnight, you mean? Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. 12 midnight. Well, that's. Well, it's morning. Yeah, I guess that is morning. Okay. <laughs> no, 12, yeah, 12 midnight. And so um, I had my gun on my couch and I was thinking like, you know, it's just, just I'm just going to run to the truck and uh, get the DVD movie out. And so I go to my truck. And I stick my head in my truck to grab the movie. And as soon as I put my foot down, there were three guys uh, right next to me. Now, I seen these guys. Out of nowhere, they come in. Out of nowhere. But I seen them in my peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really, you know, turn my head to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And um, there were three guys walking. So they, as soon as I put my foot down, they were right next to my door. They said, hey, man, give me your money. And so I kind of sized them up and I said, give you money, you know, in that third day, I'm like, give, that's like, it's going to be a fight. And then when I sized them up, I looked down at, at his hand, at one of them's hand and I seen a, a gun in his hand. Oh, and I said, oh, that money. <laughs> OK, I said, well, I don't carry cash on me. And he said, well, what you, what do you have? I said, I carry a debit card. And um, if I was thinking at that moment. I always back then I always had my debit card in my sun visor in my car in my truck my debit card my ID any type of in my uh birth certificate everything stays together in my sun visor if I was really thinking but I was in survival mode it really was there it, it was, was really, right there okay, all I had okay. to do was reach in my sun visor give them the debit card and who knows maybe they would have skedaddled they probably would have left but I'm thinking survival mode I'm thinking about getting back to my gun Oh, and your gun was on in my apartment, in your apartment, on the couch, on my couch. And so um, the guy said, well, where, where's the debit card? And I'm literally thinking, you know, it's in my house because I thought it was in my house, but I was thinking about my gun. And he said, um, OK, I said, well, let me go and get it for you. And they said, no. So they get to arguing amongst one another. And they said, no, don't let them leave. Don't let them leave. And I said, relax, man, I'm just going to go get it for you and bring it back. And they said, no. So they started following me. Go to your mm -hmm. go to your apartment. And so they followed me to my apartment. And so I put half of my body in inside the door. Now I'm like a foot, two feet away from my couch where I can mm. just reach for my gun. And like I said, I'm only thinking survival mode. But it's like I was like a second away from uh, making my move. And it's like the Lord was telling me, don't do it. Don't mm. do it. So are these guys like right behind, are they in your house too? No, they're, they're, so they're right. Um, as they're about to come in, one has his hand on the door. He and I both have our hands on the door so I can't close it and lock it. That's why his hand was on the door uh -huh. so I can close it. And so the three guys, so I'm thinking if I push one of them, they can stumble, you know, and then I have time to reach for my gun. And it's like the Lord was saying, don't do it. Don't do you know, it. So I didn't Too make dangerous. my move. Yeah. And so the guy, one of the guys pushes this first guy and all of us stumble into my apartment. And then oh. uh, now we're all, they shut the door and lock it. So now all four of you are all in your apartment. Yeah. And I try to walk fast past my couch. Because my your gun, gun is, oh my God. And so the guy sees it and he picks it up <gasps> and he puts it to my head and he said, you were going to try to kill us, weren't you? And then he started yelling, you was going to try to kill us. And one of the guys who was with him, he grabbed his hand. He said, he wasn't, hey, he wasn't going for that gun. And I said, man, I forgot that gun was on, on the couch. And I said, I wasn't thinking about that gun. And now I'm walking around. They're following me around my apartment looking for my debit card. At this time, my mind is blank. I don't know 
where my debit card is at this time because my plan A is gone out the window and I can't think of anything else. Nothing was in my mind. And I'm thinking like, Lord, where is this debit card? Maybe they will leave. I could not think of anything. And so as they're following me around, the guy's getting more anxious. The one now the guy has two guns, the one who I'm really going to have to worry about. And so um, I said, uh, where is this debit card? And so he goes, hey, tie this man up. And I'm saying, man, you don't have to do all that, man. Um, I said, you don't have to tie me up, man. I'm just going to find a debit card for you. He said, no, tie him up. And so the guy with the gun giving the instructions. So they tied me up with my phone cord. Um, And so they tied me up and set me down in my living room. Now, at this time, I had a lot of, I was teaching, so I had a lot of Air Force Ones. I had all type of gadgets, uh, laptops. My roommate had uh, a laptop, a MacBook. We both had MacBooks. And so they were taking, the third guy was taking all of our stuff out, our TVs, our shoes, our uh, any type of fancy polo clothes or something like that. They were taking them all out. And so um, one guy's watching me. So I started to talk to this guy. I said, hey, man. I said, why didn't y'all wear gloves before y'all came in here? He said, well, we weren't, we weren't expecting to come into your house. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, when I call the insurance company, the police will come out. They're going to dust for fingerprints. Just make sure you wipe everything down, you know, so they don't. Oh, helpful you know. hints. Yeah, yeah. But it, I'm trying to do everything to plant a seed in his head that I'm going to live after this. Uh-huh. You know, I'm like, hey, make sure y'all wipe everything down. And he said, oh, okay, we will, we will. I said, man, uh, I can't be mad at you. Me and my brother used to do the same thing. So I'm relating to him now. And he said, oh, yeah, man, we, we just caught you slipping. We caught you lacking. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, man, y'all y'all got me, man. Just make sure. I said, hey, when you leave, don't take my gun. It's, I said, because they can trace that. It's like, well, we'll leave the gun, but we'll take the, the clip so you don't find a clip. We'll just hide the gun in your room somewhere. You just find it later. I said, okay. And don't take the phone either because they can easily trace that. So I'm giving them all types of tips. Don't, oh, my Don't goodness. take my phone. And so the guy, he signals to his partner. He said, man, this guy's cool, man. But the guy with the gun, he didn't, he's just ignoring him. He don't want to hear it. And so he comes to get the guy from talking to me because he say, he see it's too much going on here. He, he, he sees him becoming friends. Yeah, I'm building a rapport with this guy and the other guy didn't like that. Right. So he takes him away from me and he takes him to the corner of my living room and start whispering to him. And I heard him loud as day. And he said, hey, it's your turn. You got to do it. And as he's saying that, the guy is ignoring. He's turning away from him every time he tells him that. And the guy gets back in his face. He walks back in front of him and tell him again, it's your turn. <gasps> and I'm thinking, this joke of us is about to shoot me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so the phone cord that they had me tied up with, I, I didn't break it. I just stretched it enough to um, uh, when he walks up and he, if he raises his hand, all I have to do is just stretch my arms out and I got the fight of my life on my hands. So that's what I'm thinking. And so he gives the guy a gun. And so two of them have a gun now. So the guy walks over and I can tell that something this was is different your, about the him. guy you were having a report with yeah. walks over. His demeanor had changed and his voice and everything, his facial expression, everything had changed about him. And I can tell something was different. And he said, um, he said, hey, man, hey, just roll over on your stomach really quick. And I told him, hey, man, I'm not rolling on my stomach. But I knew he wanted to. I had built such a report to him with them. He didn't have he didn't have the guts to shoot me, you know, in my face, you know, because he wanted to do it without me looking. I guess, you know, he, he I had some type of report with him and he said, no, no, man, just roll over on your stomach really quick. And I said, I'm not rolling over on my stomach. Mm-mm. And so um, now I'm thinking as soon as his hand moves and 
inch, then that's my fight. And so he said, man, just roll up on your stomach. I just need to see if you're still tied up. And so I put my hands, you know, I turned my back so I can show you him. Twist kinda, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I can show him, hey, I'm still tied up. And then he asked me again. And then that's when I knew that he was about to try to execute me. Oh, my God. So as we're having this conversation, a third guy who's taking out my belongings, he runs back in my apartment. He sticks his head in the door and say, hey, man, police. And then all three of them, they just run out the door. And I jump up from from behind them and I lock the door from behind with my hands tied behind my back. I locked my uh, my top bolt and then I ran to my bathroom to break out of the um, the charger. And I run out behind them a probably 15 second difference. I run out behind them and I don't see them or the police. I don't see a car. I don't see anything. It's just pitch black. Instant. Oh, my gosh. That is unbelievable. You never saw those guys again. Well, I thought I saw one of them because my roommate, my roommate came home five minutes later. And um, thank God for that as well, because it, it was going to be a shootout because he's licensed to carry as well. Did he have his um, gun on him? Oh, yeah. he all, mm-hmm. Both of us know the, the magnitude of living in that environment. And so both of us were licensed to carry. And so he carried he kept his uh, gun on him as well. And so um, once he came home, I told him, hey, man, we just got robbed. I said, I need to see your phone because they took my phone and, and the gun when they ran off. Oh, they did. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't have time oh. to think. So as soon as that happened, they were like, they just broke out. So and that wasn't their plan. Their plan was to shoot me anyway. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So did, do you remember, did they have a car or a truck or something? No, I believe that they lived over there. I don't know if they were over there visiting or. They moved with someone. So or when they were carrying this crap out of your house, they, they, they were carrying, carrying it into it another to house. a car or into another apartment. So this possibly. So there was my. And so as I'm outside standing, waiting on a police, me and my roommate, I see a guy come out. Like he's um, he's probably like, uh, I don't know, probably about 500 yards or more down mm-hmm. away from me. And he comes out. He had twists in his head. And one of the guys who robbed me had twists in his head. And he came out with, you know, just shorts on, you know, to scope the scene out. Right. You know, it's an old trick. You know, you come out to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. After you leave the crime scene, you come back like you pretend. Yeah, they like all you. come back. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he had on different clothes. And I, I told my roommate, I said, don't look down there. But I believe that's one of them. Oh, my goodness. And so um, and so we just kept talking. And I said, OK, I said, give me your gun. <gasps> and I took his gun and I ran around the building. And I popped out to where the guy was standing, but he wasn't there anymore. Mm. And so now at this time, like I said, at the time, I'm a new believer. I'm I'm new to this Christianity thing to turn out a cheek thing. So I'm still on the, (laughs) I'm still on the revenge tip almost. And so I called back to my, you know, uh, guy who I grew up with in my neighborhood. I made a phone call. And the first thing he asked me, he said, do you want me to bring the hundred round through? You know, the hundred round uh, clip. Do you want me to bring some ammunition for you? Oh, my goodness. And so with that mindset and the first thing that came to my mind is like, what am I doing? It's like, no. So I just I don't even know why I called him, you know, because I understood I'm, I'm a new creature now. I don't live that lifestyle anymore. And uh, everything that's, that was taken away from me, I mean, God can replace it. I, I survived with my life. How long did you live there after this? Oh, I moved out. Um probably a week or so, not too long after that. I was going to say, yeah, I morning, broke my lease I'd be in the, moving out in the morning. Yeah, I, mo- I moved. Um, and, uh, 
the next morning, crazy thing about it, that, that next day, uh, there, it was on the news that three guys had robbed a, a lady and a husband at a Burger King and they shot the lady in the back. <gasps> and it was kind of describing them like the guys that I, I was like, that was probably. Oh, them. my gosh. Anthony, yeah. you really just skated by. Oh, man. Yeah. Got wow. had a hedge of protection around me. Knee pain is something we all have experience with. The team at Georgia Medical Treatment Center is here to help. They offer drug and surgery-free treatment plans that treat the most common sources of knee pain. They also accept most insurance plans, including Medicare and Medicaid. For a free consultation or for more information, visit them online at georgiamtc.com slash knee pain. Don't live with knee pain. Beat it. With help from our friends at Georgia Medical Treatment Center. So um, one part of your life we haven't even talked about yet is you're happily married. I am very, very happily married. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about where you met your wife. Well, that's a funny story. Um, we met in the, at the factory church at the time we were meeting out of, um, meeting out of uh, the movie theater right off Town Lake. And uh, I just, the first week that they opened, I just so happened to, to go there. The very first day they opened their doors because someone um, told me about it a couple of weeks before they opened. And uh, at the time I was going to first Baptist Woodstock and um, I was at first Baptist Woodstock for a couple of years. I loved every bit of it. I loved Johnny hunt and the small groups that I used to have. And um, so someone invited me to the factory. And so I ended up going and I met the pastor. And as soon as I came out, he just grabbed me and gave me a hug. He said, man, I need to meet with you. Oh. He said, I like the way you're dressed, man. He was like, man, I like your style. He's like, man, <laughs> we got to do lunch. And so we end up doing lunch. And, you know, he told me his vision on on what he wanted to do. And I, I, I believed in him. He was all about digging wells in Africa. And he was he's been digging wells in Africa even before he planted a church. So I was kind of seeing where his heart was. What's his name? Uh, Pastor Keith Norman. Mm-hmm. And so uh and his lovely wife, Lucille Norman, I don't want to leave her out and their kids. But um, once we finished uh, lunch and he invited me again and I went back the second week and uh, from there I just continued to go. And so my wife and I would take I work at Goshen Valley and I, I work with kids in our uh, independent living program and I would always have them with me. So I would take them to church with me. And one time I had about four kids with me and I had a young lady with me and we would sit down in this dark theater and the pastor's on paying attention uh, to the sermon. And the young lady said, Mr. Anthony, Mr. Anthony, uh, I think that lady is checking you out. <laughs> My <laughs> wife hates it when I say, but she wasn't. Let me make it clear now. She wasn't? She was not checking me oh, out. Oh, I think she I was, swindled you. I bet no, she was. Oh, oh, no. But this young lady, she just where she hooked us up. But she was like, um. And I, I didn't pay any attention to it. I'm like, girl, pay attention to the sermon. That's right. <laughs> you know, pay attention. And so I left. And um, the next week, I ended up meeting my wife. We were uh, going out to serve the community in one of the communities in Woodstock. And we were giving out, uh, I think it was around Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And so we were going to this neighborhood, passing out food. And me and my wife uh, ended up in the same car. Uh-huh. They was like, oh, okay, we don't want women driving alone. And so everybody got out their cars and, you know, people had vans and whoever had a big truck or something. And mm-hmm. her and I ended up in the same uh, car where we talked. And once I saw her, I was like, okay, hold up now. <laughs> this, uh, 
beautiful uh, Ugandan woman, African woman. I heard an accent. That was I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> and so um, I asked her for her number. And uh, the next morning, we were at IHOP <gasps> eating breakfast. All right. We were at yeah. IHOP eating breakfast. Yeah. So how many years have you been married? Well, how long before you got married? Well, two years before we got married. I, it would have been earlier because um, I wanted to ask her mom for her hand in marriage. Aww. Her mom had planned on to come down here with her sisters one summer. And so at that time, I was putting money down on a ring. And so it would, probably would have been like a year, a year and a half maybe. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was waiting. I said, okay, I'm going to wait for her mom and her family to get here to ask her mom you know, for her hand in marriage, because I know they're really big on that in, in Africa. You have to ask the father, you go to the village, you may have to take some cows with you, mm. you know, to offer. Um, but this was going to be different because I didn't have cows, neither did I have <laughs> money like that. <laughs> and so, uh, and her father passed when she was uh, younger, when she was three, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so um, I said, I want to honor her mom first and, and do that for her in front Lovely. of her mom. Then her mom got denied her visa. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? So they extended the process. So her sisters were still going to come. And I said, OK, that I have to be good enough. So yeah. I, I asked uh, with her sisters and then they FaceTimed their mom and I asked them all together. I pulled the ring out, you know, in front of them. She wasn't there. Oh, your uh, wife wasn't there. OK, great. No, she she was in a different room. So I pulled the ring out and they, they started crying. Oh, that's so I was so like, great. call mommy, call mommy. And they called her and I asked her and she said, yes, my son. Yes, That's, I would love that. Oh my gosh! So, so it was—it's been five years of marriage now. You've had—you've been married five years. Five years, yes. And you have three children. Three boys. Three boys, you have. Three boys. Yep. Yeah. Well, do you have plans to have you know like twenty-five? Are you gonna have a? <laughs> are you gonna have a big crew? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, we this funny because we kind of been talking about that um yesterday actually we. We kind of mentioned that. I think she's having baby fever. Uh-oh. Well, what <laughs> does she do for a living? She is a midwife. Well, she <laughs> delivering babies. Well, she's not <laughs> delivering babies anymore. She just worked with um, prenatal. I mean, is it? She's pre- always going to have baby fever. Oh, yeah. So, and then yeah. we have a seven-month-old, which is, his teeth is coming in. Uh-oh. And I was like, baby, you might be having baby fever because, you know, Josiah is growing up. <laughs> but like we teething. laughed about it. But I don't think there's any plans. Whatever God's plans are, though, we're open to it. Well, you mentioned that you work with Goshen Valley, and I'm very interested in that aspect of your life. What exactly do you do? Are you employed by Goshen Valley? Yes. And what is your role? Well, I'm one of the uh, one of the life coaches there. So I work with our older kids, the older population. We have we take kids from 17 to 21. And um, those kids who are um, on the verge of aging out of care. 17 so, to 21. So foster children or people in foster care age out at 18. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So you're doing 17 to 21. Right. Okay. Right. And sometimes when those kids age out, they don't have anywhere to go. They don't have any families that, that can take them in. They can't go back home. And so um, we have a, organ, uh, a program where we have uh, kids who are aging out. Instead of them aging out, they just transition over into our pre- program and we have two houses in downtown Canton, and we also have uh, we have them out in the community in apartments. So those kids are either in college, they have cars, they're working in the community, or they're still in school. Some a couple of them are still in high school. Mm-hmm. So, wow, that's a really important program. Right? How many kids go through 
all of this foster system and end up having nowhere to go at right. when they age out. So right. thank you for doing that. No, thank God. Yeah. Um, well, I kind of would like to bring the focus back to the article mm-hmm. just a little bit, if you don't mind. Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Um, there's much more in here in the article mm-hmm. than what we covered. I shouldn't say much more. There's some different stuff in the article than what we covered. But there's a poem, or not a poem, a, po- a passage that you wrote mm-hmm. that um, really, really stuck with me. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind reading it sure. here today. Sure. I put this on Facebook. This was probably, now it's probably like a couple of months ago. And it says, um, how can you father when you've never been fathered? I reflect on all the things I wanted, all the footballs I wish I caught, all the bike rides I wanted, all the hugs I longed for, all the bedtime stories I wish I heard, all the congratulations I wanted to hear, all the daddy's home my ears yearned for, all the advice, the fixing tires, cutting grass, laughing and singing, answer questions about God, godly guidance, fishing trips, tossed in the air, baseball throwing, bend your knees hearing, I love you sons that I never received. I just become what I've always I've just become what I've always wanted and asked the Lord to guide me in raising godly men. No excuse for me now that I know him being Christ. Yeah. 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 Is it is it titled anything? No, I didn't. I I, I, I did title it. I think I think there was one of the titles. I think. um, uh, What was the title? Um, How can you father? Yeah. When you've never been fathered. Yeah, I think that was the title, I think, that I wrote on Facebook. That's actually the, uh, did you read that? Mm-hmm. Right now you did? Yeah. I, I just think it's so amazing. Yeah. That to me was just heartfelt. Yeah. And you have some of your artwork there next yeah. to it, so. Yeah. Anthony? Yes, ma'am. You're an incredible person. Well, that's a stretch, I think. I- <laughs> Now, all of a sudden, you're going to sell yourself short now? <laughs> no, I'm not selling my short. So, man, God is amazing. It's God. Um, uh, man, I, I just know that um, God chose me, and I, I'm grateful for that. And so um, I try to use everything that I have. Um, don't do enough of it, but uh, I, don't, I don't know if this, is in the art, this wasn't in the article, but I go out and street preach as well. Tell me this. What is street preach? Well, I go out and evangelize. Mm-hmm. I go out on the streets. I used to go in downtown Atlanta. And stand on the streets right between the, the bars and the, the, the homeless, the drunkards, the high people, the drug dealers. And I would stand out there and, and proclaim the gospel. And I've done it in Canada. I've done it in Woodstock. I've been, uh, there's a one lady who did an article on me one time before as well. But um, all that I do, I just want to glorify God and, and let people know that it's because of him and no other reason. Healing begins with hope, and hope brings all of us together. In this difficult time, it's a good thought to embrace. At Northside Hospital, our physicians, nurses, and staff have committed themselves to you, your families, and our neighbors. It'll take all of us together doing what we can, the 24,000 employees at Northside, and you. When we do this, and we will, the strength of hope will shine brightly. Northside Hospital, northside.com. And we're back one more time with Enjoy Cherokee Voices. I'm Jody Drinkard here with the one, the only Anthony Hall. And now we've gone through so many different paths to get to this point. But um, 
I wanted to talk about your artwork a little bit before you have to boogie. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me the first time you picked up a paintbrush. This was, um, I moved in, the, in my neighborhood two years ago. So um, right around 2020, uh, when the pandemic, right in the midst of the pandemic, we had, um, we bought a house out here in, in Cherokee, in Canton. And um, I was just sitting home. I had a lot of downtime from work because uh, we weren't going into the offices. And so I was browsing on the internet and uh, on Instagram and YouTube. And I just uh, found a like, and I got bit by a creative book and I was watching these artists create. And I was like, so fascinated about some of the things that they were doing. And one of the guys was using an iPad. And so I had an old iPad from about 2000 and shucks, 12 maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let me, I have an iPad. It's I got to find it, but I haven't used it since then. So I went and found that iPad and I tried to kind of mimic what this guy was doing. And I realized the the iPad was too old to be updated to the software that he was using. And so I, I invested in the iPad. My wife and I talked about it. We went to AT&T, bought an iPad, an upgraded one. I downloaded the version that the guy was using. Procreate uh, is the app. And I started just practicing. And then I seen this other artist. He was painting. And I was like, I think I can do that. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Hobby Lobby and I came home with all these canvases and paint. And my wife is like, what are <laughs> you doing? <laughs> you find all this stuff. And I was like, I don't know. And so she just left me to my own devices in the garage. And uh, the first canvas that I did, it was her house. I, I messed up on it. I was like, oh, Lord, that don't look too shabby. And so I put that one aside and I started. I put three uh, canvases together and I painted on that and that painting that I did, I end up selling it to a lady who is the set designer for legacies, the TV show that comes on CW. No kidding. Yeah. And it was on that show. That yeah. was your second painting. Second painting that I've ever done. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's kind of a boon. Yeah. And you're going to go and so how many paintings have you done since or? Oh Lord. Um, like hundreds. Uh, maybe, maybe not a hundred. I don't think I've hit the hundred mark yet, or I'm underestimating myself because I still got a lot of stuff at home. And my wife is like, you need to get some, some shells for these paintings, baby. So maybe <laughs> I am. At, and I've sold quite a bit. So maybe I am past the hundred mark. Um, but, and also the digital art that I do as well. I've, um, sold a lot of that. And that lady who, uh, bought the art from, uh, for the TV show. So she sent over a contract and said, I needed to sign something saying that I'm okay in it to be on their TV show. And she called the next day and she said, Hey, I want two more big pieces. You know? Really? Yeah. So I sold them that and that, that was on the show as well. That's amazing. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. well, we're going to have to watch that show and make sure we see it. I don't even know what show it is. Did I mean, you see it? No, I, she sent me, a, um, she sent me some photos of the when she, when they had it on the set, but I haven't seen, I don't have cable. So I didn't see the, uh, the actual TV show. She sent, she sent me the number of the show 86 or something like this show 86. I was like, <laughs> Lord, I don't know how I'm going to find that. So, so, There's yeah. a lot of shows to get through to get yours. But now I understand you have some, uh, artwork in a penthouse in Buckhead. Yeah. So, um, this was right around the time, uh, this was maybe not a year ago, maybe about eight months ago. Um, I got the idea of painting on furniture 
And so uh, I was just messing around. I was going to keep the the chair. Mm-hmm. I went and found the couch at Goodwill. It was an all white couch uh, chair. And I took it home and I just started, I put the peanut gallery on there, Charlie Brown and Snoopy and the entire peanut gallery. And I dashed some paint on it and I was, I took some photos of it and I sat on it, you know, in the, in the actual photo that you guys have in the magazine. And I was just going to keep that couch cause I, I really love that couch. And there was a lady who, uh, who's been by the market and saw and started following me and she contacted me and she said, um, Hey, how much for the chair? Uh-huh. And I didn't think about that. And I also had another peanut gallery canvas that I painted mm-hmm. with Snoopy and Charlie Brown. And she said, how much for both of them? And um, I just threw a price at her because I really didn't want to sell it. And she said, we're going to come see it. Are you going to be at the market this Saturday? I said, yes, I'll be there. I said, I can't fit the couch. I don't have a truck big enough, but um, uh, I'll bring the the canvas. She said, okay, we see, just send us more pictures of the couch. And they came, they saw it. They said, hey, we'll take it. Unbelievable. Yeah. So they came and picked it up. No, I delivered it to them. So they came and and saw the painting. And then uh, they said, we'll take the chair and we'll take the painting. And so um, I said, okay, I'll deliver it to you. And as they were leaving, I was thinking, man, they're they're only going to have two pieces. They're going to need some more to fill that wall. And then 20 minutes later, they came back and they said, hey, can we commission you to do some more peanut gallery canvases to fill our wall? And I said, you sure can. And so I did three more pieces for them. And um, she has an Airbnb, her and her husband, in Buckhead, in a penthouse on the 22nd floor. And I, and I delivered it to them. And it's, it's an amazing view. It's called Penthouse, Penthouses of Buckhead or something like that. But um, wow, yeah, so my art's just there. That's moving on up right there. That's moving on up, do you ever fear getting in trouble with the Peanuts gang? Oh no, I don't. There's artists who I who I follow. They sell they sell their art for ten thousand thousands of dollars. Ten thousand dollars. You mean you for didn't get ten thousand dollars from that couch? Twenty? Twenty thousand? Yeah. Oh wow. Well, yeah. congratulations. Thank I'm really you. proud of you. That's really oh, thank exciting. You. Thank you so much. Might have to rent that. That uh, penthouse sometime. Okay. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Penthouse guys. You should guys, rent it, it sometime and like parade in all your friends and get get pictures up there. Well, you know what? And um, I'm all about building relationships. And so I was delivering it to her, and I hung it for her as well. She was like, "Oh, Anthony, any other artist would have just dropped it off." And I said, <laughs> and she said, "I have a photographer coming. I'm gonna list this penthouse." This weekend, and that only gives me a couple of days. She said, but my walls are still empty. She was like, oh, my goodness, the photographer is not going to have anything to take photos of. And I said, well, why don't you do this? I said, if you can get to my house, I have about 50 paintings and you can go and choose to put stuff on your wall to stage it, you know, before people uh, rent it. And she said, oh, my goodness, would you do that? I would love. I said, what you would have to get there early in the morning because I'll be at work. My wife will be home. And she said, okay, okay, fine. And so she showed up and she got about six pieces, six large pieces. And she put them in her bathroom and around her, her walls. And, um, and she, she's actually kept them there for about three months, four months. <laughs> and I just allowed her to, to keep them. And then, um, once the, uh, Marietta artisan market started back up, I said, Hey, uh, I'm going to have to come and get those paintings. Yeah. And she said, well, I have it booked for the weekend. 
I was like, okay, it's not my problem. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she said, how much for all of it? No. <laughs> so she bought all of it. You are kidding me. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, if anybody person. that's out there in uh, podcast land wants to purchase some of them or see some of his paintings, he can be found at the Marietta. Artisan Market. Artisan Market. Yeah, just about every Saturday. Mm-hmm. Downtown Marietta, right behind the square, behind the train tracks. Uh, a farmer's market happens there at the same time that the Artisan Market. There are so many phenomenal artists out there. Uh, you, will be, you won't be upset. You can also get some, uh, a good view of a few of them and some of your other creative uh, pieces, including clothing and hats. Yeah. And uh, really, really cool pieces yeah. right in the mill at Etowah. I'm sorry, the mill on Etowah at Whole Soul, which is a boutique on the first floor of this building. So yes. come on out, take a look. Yes. Buy a painting. Yes. And You're also gonna- you can um, find me at Lydell Art, which is uh, my middle name. So um, my Instagram is L-Y-D-E-L-L Art, Lydell Art on Instagram. Or Facebook. But majority of my stuff is on Instagram. Cool. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. Go out there. Get out there and and do what? (laughs) Go be great. No. Go serve your king is one of the things that I always go. (laughs) Go serve your king and enjoy Cherokee. (laughs) I was way off. Go get out there and serve your king. Oh yeah, no. Get out there and enjoy Cherokee. Do both. Do both. (laughs) Canton on the rise. That's right. Enjoy Cherokee Voices and Enjoy Cherokee Magazine are produced by EMI, a nationally recognized award-winning multimedia content producer. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. For additional information about this and all of our podcasts, visit enjoycherokee.com. If you enjoyed this show, click subscribe and take some time to rate and review the podcast now. It really does help us succeed in the booming world of podcasts.